The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Please turn with me, if you would, to Genesis chapter 8. Genesis chapter 8. So we are continuing tonight in our series. It's called Our Story Begins. We're going verse by verse through the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Uh, Genesis gives us beautiful glimpses into the power of God and the plans of God. And this is because the Bible is a book about God. Because of God's great mercy and love, he has included us in his story. Now, God had no beginning because he is the eternal one who has always and will always exist. However, when he spoke the creation that we inhabit into existence and breathed life into mankind, our story began. Our story is contained within God's story, and we only have a story because God has given it to us. Our very existence is a gift from God. Uh, we've talked at length in other times uh, how merciful it is that he uh, has even kept going with us. So we're thankful for that. Uh, so tonight we are breaking into chapter 8, uh, where we find Noah and his family coming to the end of their all-inclusive cruise. Uh, this was not, however, like a Disney cruise. Um, there were no stop-offs right, at sun-soaked, sandy beaches. Uh, the Bible gives no hint that there were swimming pools or water slides on the ark, although the Bible doesn't include schematics, so I guess you don't know. Um, but it was only, this, this cruise they were on, it was only all-inclusive because they had worked very hard to stock the ark with provisions. They, had, they were assumedly working the entire time uh, that they and the animals had been shut up into the ark with the purpose of repopulating the earth. At this point, they had been floating driven by the wind and the currents for a long time. So let's read these 14 verses here, uh, chapter 8, verses 1 through 14, and we'll see what the Lord has to teach us tonight, okay? Genesis 8, I'm going to start in verse 1. Here we go. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the cattle that were with him in the ark, and God caused a wind to pass over the earth, and the water subsided. All the fountains of the deep and the floodgates... Of the sky were closed, and the rain from the sky was restrained, and the water receded steadily from the earth, and at the end of 150 days, the water decreased. In the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark rested upon the mountains of Ararat. The water decreased steadily until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains became visible. Then it came about at the end of 40 days that Noah opened the window of the ark which he had made. And he sent out a raven, and it flew here and there until the water was dried up from the earth. Then he sent out a dove from him to see if the water was abated from the face of the land. But the dove found no resting place for the sole of her foot. So she returned to him into the ark, for the water was on the surface of all the earth. Then he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark to himself. So he waited yet another seven days, and again he sent out the dove from the ark. The dove came to him toward evening, and behold, in her beak was a freshly picked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the water was abated from the earth. Then he waited yet another seven days and sent out the dove, and she did not return to him again. Now it came about in the 601st year, in the first month, on the first of the month, the water was dried up from the earth. 
Then Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the surface of the ground was dried up. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth was dry. Praise God for his word. Amen. So first things first, what, what's some important things to look at? Okay, first of all, verse 1, but God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the cattle that were with him in the ark, okay? We need to address the fact that when we hear the word remember, we think that means God forgot and then remembered. That's definitely not what's happening. God did not get distracted with other important business somewhere else and forget Noah and then oh, all of a sudden, oh, I'm a man down there in the ark, right? That's, that's not... Uh, what that language means. Rather, in the Bible, the word there, uh, remembered, is used often uh, of God in the sense that God is taking action on his promises. Okay, so I'll give you some examples. When God was about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, he remembered Abraham. That's in Genesis 19, and then he spared Lot. Uh, When Rachel wanted to bear children but could not, God remembered Rachel, and then she conceived. You see that in Genesis 30. Uh, When Israel was in bondage in Egypt, God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's in Exodus 2. Uh, Later on, when Mary conceived Jesus by the Holy Spirit, she praised God, saying that he remembered his mercy as he had spoken to Abraham and his offspring. And so it's it's a word that means, when it's talking about God remembering, that he's taking action on a promise the sense that he's already said what he's going to do, and he's remembering his own faithfulness. Not that he could have ever forgotten it, but definitely, um, you know, the, the long time span that Noah was on the ark wasn't because God was off, you know, in some parallel universe doing some other thing and forgot. He had, you know, <laughs> left his man over here, okay? So we want to make sure God, <laughs> God being omniscient, being uh, eternal, doesn't remember in the sense that we do ever anyways, really, because he couldn't forget. So, there we go, all right? That's important. We don't want to misunderstand that. And, and oftentimes the Bible's using, you know, human language to, to help us understand really big ideas about God. And, and so sometimes we have, to, we have to know that that's what's happening. So here's, here's one thing we, we can draw from these verses. And, and I, I, I'm sure you didn't add it all up, but Noah was on the ark a long time, okay? The dates here are a little hard to keep up with. If you just keep reading about, you know, in, in the seventh month, 17th day, it just kind of keeps giving us that type deal. But if you take the time and calculate it, and people have, you come up with roughly 370 days, okay? How many days are in a year? 365, right? So we're talking about roughly just over a year we're on the ark, okay? That's, that kind of even, just understanding that changes a little bit. The, the, temperature and the tempo of the story. Um, and, and I just want to ask you, like, can, can you imagine how hard that must have been? A year on the ark for multiple reasons, right? I'm, I can't imagine it smelled great, just off rip. But aside from that, uh, think about the fact that God told Noah when the flood would start, right? God told Noah the ark would preserve him and everyone else, But God left out a detail that it would seem would have been pretty helpful for the sanity of everyone on the ark, right? When will the waters recede? Here's when it'll start. You'll be okay, but no details about how long it's going to take for this bathtub to drain, right? I mean, that's, that seems like that would have been helpful. And and surely it would have seemed logical to them, the people on the ark, that if it took 40 days and 40 nights for the waters to rise, that 
It would be close to that, hopefully, for the waters to recede, but it didn't. It took another 11 months. 11 months, friends, to recede, longer to recede than it did to rise. That's 11 months of waiting. That's 11 months of wondering. That's a lot. It was four months before the ark even came to rest in the mountains of Ararat, the first sign of hope. But then you had that many more months from four to 11 of, well, we hit something, we stopped moving, but we're still stuck. We're still looking at endless expanses of water. Now, these mountains uh, are in modern-day Turkey. We know where they are. Uh, they are very remote. They're difficult to access, but there are still expeditions from time to time, people attempting to find any remains of the ark. There have been reports of certain things that could lead to the idea that maybe pieces of it have been found. There's some reports here and there. None of those are really totally substantiated, but it is interesting reading. I would just submit that to you. You know, look up ark expeditions and kind of read some of that stuff. It's, it's interesting. And, and many, uh, many theologians and, and even modern Christian thinkers have mused at what it would mean for us to find wreckage of the ark today and that God may do that. Uh, it was a sign for the people. The ark was a sign for people in that day. It'd be pretty cool and it'd be a pretty big sign for people in our day. Uh, it definitely wouldn't hurt <laughs> probably the advance of the gospel. It wouldn't convince everybody. Uh, certain people's hearts can be hard all the way through to the end, but I don't know. Uh, Maybe we've got some tough climbers here. Maybe let's get a team together, see if we can find it. That'd be cool. So here's the question. In, in considering the time spans we're talking about, considering the psychological effects of that much time, considering the fact that God was kind of scant on the back-end details, how did Noah and his family not just give up in despair? It's a long time. How did they not end up doubting God? Or even worse, cursing God, feeling like they had been abandoned or betrayed in this journey? How did they do that? Well, we're going to look at that tonight, but also we want to be asking ourselves, do we have a tendency when God seems to be moving more slowly than we think he should, or when the future seems uncertain, do we have a tendency then to doubt him or even to be angry with him? Are there times in our life when the results of a sin-filled world, our own sin, sometimes the sin of Others, when it causes difficult and painful situations that seem like logically, anyways, should be easily fixed in 40 days or less, are we tempted to let loose of the faith which God has given us as a gift? Are we tempted to question maybe God's goodness or his potence, his ability and power to do what he said he's going to do? I think if we're honest, most of us are either in some situation or have been or if we're smart, we know it won't be long till we are in, again, a situation where we could be tempted to think we have a better sense of the timetable than God does. Uh, God sometimes seems like he's moving slowly. Why does it seem that way? Why does it seem like God is slow sometimes? Well, I take great comfort in the fact that Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, knew that we were going to feel this way. Maybe he had felt this way at times. In 2 Peter 3.9, he says this, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come 
to repentance. And so Peter addresses the idea of God's slowness kind of at the cosmic level, right? At the biggest picture, what he's talking about is God has not returned and kind of tidied all of this up, done all that he said he's going to do, not because he's slow, not because he's impotent, not because he's unable, but because he's patient. He's moving slowly on purpose because his plans are much broader than we could really understand, that he's working something that we can't see the totality of. The question is, have we seen enough to trust him in the meantime? Peter knew he might feel like God was slow, and he told us point blank in no uncertain terms, the Lord is not slow about his promise. And so if we find ourselves in a place of feeling like that's the case, we got to come back and remember, our sense of time is not how we judge what God is doing. As a matter of fact, it's probably unwise in, in most scenarios to judge what God is doing. Um, he's called us to trust him. We're not his judge. The truth of it is this. God is never slow. He is always right on time. He does what he does when he does because he knows all things and his purposes are often much larger than we can possibly conceive. Amen. That's true. A lot of mental anguish, a lot of potential temptation for despair could be dispelled if we believe that God is never slow and he's always right on time. If we know that he does what he does, when he does, on purpose. He is, he is far better than Gandalf who uh, assured the small hobbit Frodo that wizards are never late. They arrive exactly when they intend to, right? Gandalf was maybe trying to reflect a little bit there of God's character. Uh, and I, I don't know if what Tolkien was doing there if he was trying to point us that way. But either way, that's not really true of any lesser being. But God who is the supreme over all, who is sovereign over absolutely everything, he's never been late. He's always exactly on time. Even, even in this situation we're talking about, right? Yes, it only took 40 days and 40 nights for the water to rise. Why did it take so much longer for it to go down? Was that because God was limited? Could God not supernaturally uh, cause that water to dissipate faster? Well, I, I would say, of course he could. So then that starts to lead us to, well, why? What's God doing? As humans, can we be honest and say this? We like results. Can, will you buy that first premise? Do we like results? We like results. We like quick results. True? That's true. We will expend great deals of energy and creativity developing the shortest and most efficient process to get the desired result. We almost invariably believe the quickest route is the best route. That's almost always true. And oftentimes we believe the process to get there is just a necessary evil. Think about how your GPS works. When you turn that thing on, you punch an address in, what's it, what's it always trying to calculate for you? It's, it's factoring traffic, it's factoring routes, the whole thing. What is it trying to do for you? Give you the what route? Quickest route, man. The fastest route. Why is that? That's because whoever developed that GPS knows if they want you to use their product, it better be finding the quickest route. Why? Because you're a human. <laughs> the app developers figured it out. We need to know that about ourselves. We need to know that oftentimes we, we think in those terms. Uh, recently, most of you know, recently uh, my family and I would just travel to Montana, and my son Max illustrated what I'm about to say brilliantly, but also annoyingly. Um, so for Natalie and I, 
the drive to the airport, the shuttle ride to the terminal, and the plane ride, those were all necessary evils. You got to do that if you want to go to Montana, okay? I mean, we could have rented a car and drove, but I wanted everyone to be alive when we got there, so we didn't do that. Uh, but for us, those were necessary evils to get to the desired destination. But Max now, Max, on the other hand, we get to the airport. We're just, we pull into the long-term parking, and, and instantly what, we drive up, and there's this little semicircle of buses parked there. And he goes, are we going to get to ride one of those buses? He's already super, like he's stoked about the fact that, hold on, we're going to park this car. We get to ride a bus? Whoa, right? He's just, his, his mind is blown. So he was thrilled about the fact we rode the bus from the parking lot to the terminal. Okay, and then we get in, we, we get our bags checked in and whatever, and so we're walking down. If you've been to CBG, you know that there's a certain part in the airport where they've got trams that run on either side, like little train subway things, right? And so, you know, Max all but pleaded and begged. It didn't, like the timing didn't work, so we didn't do it on the way out, right? So it, it, it would have taken us longer to do that than it did to walk, and so we walked. But so, so we get to Montana, we're having tons of fun. We're, we're in... We're in Glacier National Park, okay? There are people travel from all over the world to come to this place because it is some of the most pristine, beautiful, mountainous terrain you'll ever be in. So we're hiking in this just uh, absolute majestic beauty, and in the middle of, of that, with all of that around us, Max asks the question, hey, Dad, are we going to ride the tram on the way home? I'm like, dude, yeah. Sure, great, we'll ride the tram. I could have left you in the airport. You know, you could have just rode the tram all week and you would have thought it was great. You know, <laughs> I just brought you to one of the most beautiful places on God's green earth and, and, and you're thinking, we're here right now and you're thinking about the tram at the airport back at CBG. My man, my man. So, <laughs> but the point is, <laughs> the point is, uh, most of us, we str- Max gets it, I don't know. And it's, it's cool when you can learn stuff from your kids. I, I hope you do that. I hope you're humble enough to do that. Or maybe other people's kids, whatever it looks like. Because kids, oftentimes, uh, the kingdom of God is theirs, right? I mean, they just see stuff in a cool way sometimes. But the point is, what I'm getting at is, and most of us struggle deeply to believe this. You need to know this about yourself. You struggle to believe this. The prize is often in the process. The prize is often in the process. We like results, We like end results, we like quick results, but the prize, friend, is often in the process. And God knows this. And this is why, to us, it often seems that he is slower than he needs to be in delivering on his promises. God also knows something that we are often unable or unwilling to acknowledge until we have the benefit of hindsight. You've heard the saying, right, that hindsight is 20-20? If you haven't heard that saying, have you at least understood that you can look back sometimes into situations and go, oh, now I get it. Now I see what God was doing, or now I see why that went that way, because that gear of my life clicked into this gear of my life in a way that if I was orchestrating everything, it never would have, right? Am I the only one on that? Or somebody else has seen in hindsight God's faithfulness and God's uh, absolute mastery over (laughs) time and over our destinies. God knows something we are unable and unwilling often to acknowledge until we have the benefit of hindsight. The prize is often not what we think it is. 
So the prize is often in the process, and the prize is often not what we think it is. We often think we know what we need. We know what the end result should be and is best. Friends, the prize of all prizes is closeness to Christ, which is how we are saved. The second is being like Christ, which is our true joy, and it's the way we fulfill our divine destiny. The prize of all prizes is closeness to Christ. It is a gift given to us by faith and grace alone. And as a result of that, we have the opportunity to be like Christ. And in that, we experience the true joy and purpose every human was created for. These are the grand prizes. But oftentimes, it's in the process that these things are given to us. And there's certain scriptures, and if I start talking about them, we'll be here all night. But there's certain scriptures that definitely let us know that without the process, these things we won't have, these greatest of prizes. Uh, we oftentimes are seeking for and would settle for far lesser things than close, beautiful relationship with Jesus our Savior. And oftentimes we would settle for much less than being like him. We would settle for something that looks like surviving, uh, gliding, shifting into neutral and just kind of coasting in this life. But God's desire for us is much greater and better than that. The prize is in the process. And oftentimes the prize is not what we think it is. Sometimes for folks who are single, they think the prize is marriage. But what the prize actually is, is contentment in Jesus. And why do I say that? That sounds so trite. And I know there's writers all over the internet now that would ridicule me and say, well, you, you aren't single, so you don't understand what it is like to be single. <clears throat> if I'm not single, I was single at one time. <laughs> I mean, that's just how that works. I know it's been a while, but I do remember... And, and I think we need to dispel a myth. Can we do this for a moment? This, this is not about this, but I just want to say this. We need to dispel the myth that if somebody's not in the exact same stage or position that you are, that they can't speak truth and love to your situation. Can we just get rid of that lie? Okay, because we're not dependent even on how well my situation relates to your situation if I'm going to try to help you through it. We're both hopefully dependent upon the wisdom and the truth of Christ and his word, and that is not dependent on whether or not I am in your shoes. Now, is it sometimes helpful to have the beautiful gift of somebody walking alongside you that has experienced what you've experienced? Yes, I'm not trying to take that away. But what I am trying to take away, what I think needs to be put to death, is this idea that if somebody's not exactly in the phase I'm in, the situation I'm in, they can't relate to me and thus can't speak to me something, can't help me walk with me through it, speaking truth and love to my benefit. Okay? Is that all right? Is there anybody in, there, in here that will say amen as if they agree with that? Amen. That's good. Okay. So if you're single thinking the prize is marriage, what it actually is is contentment in Jesus. And I'm not going to stop there. Here's why that's true. Because without that, without the contentment in Christ that comes through a season, a process of singleness, the feelings that come with that, I understand there's a feeling of emptiness. I understand sometimes there's a feeling of a lack of connection. Sometimes I feel like there's, a, I understand there's a feeling of being disjointed, uh, especially in a culture that prizes and treats people who are in a relationship, whether it's marriage or not, unfortunately, but people that are in a relationship as if they've got it figured out and that if you aren't, then somehow there's something wrong with you. That's, that's absolutely not true, but those feelings can absolutely be real uh, when that's the environment you're surrounded by. Here's why 
that's an issue. Contentment in Christ is actually the prize because without that, we end up devastated and disappointed that our spouse didn't bring the fullness and contentment we were looking for. Do you understand that in the process of seeking Christ and being close to Christ in the time when you are not uh, seeking marriage or you are not in a marriage, that in that time right there is how you actually learn how to be content in Christ? Because if you jump out of that and you go straight to forcing a relationship to happen because I feel this hole or I feel this pressure or whatever it is, and you jump over that point of being content in Christ and whole and full in Christ, then invariably you are coming to a relationship looking for that other person to supply that contentment and that fullness, and they will will never be able to deliver. And then you will end up demonizing the thing you idolized. You will end up very disappointed and devastated. And God doesn't want that for you. In the process is where the prize is. The prize is contentment in Christ. Because without that, you will, you will always move into a relationship bringing in baggage that is going to make that much, much harder. Now, is God gracious? Do people come together all the time with that kind of baggage? Do people come together all the time not content in Christ and absolutely idolizing each other or idolizing the idea of being with somebody and it works out? See, that's the problem when I say stuff like this. I know, how, I know what you guys are doing out there. I know it. See, you think I don't know, but I know. You're like, well, I know this one person, right? Or this one couple that it, it went like this and it's fine now. It's just hunky-dory. Yeah, I understand that God is gracious, Woo, I'm so glad, right? Because all of us would be in hell right now if he wasn't. Say amen to that. Go ahead. Amen. But what that doesn't mean is we act like that's normative or we act like that's best case scenario to, to, to do the jacked up trail and hope God is gracious, man. There's, there's a better way. <laughs> he's illumined that for us through his word and he's faithful to walk with us through it. If you're single, the prize is not marriage. The prize is contentment in Christ. And if you have that, you have uh, God's, what God would desire for you to have in order to move into a place of being able to build a healthy relationship and marriage with somebody. Okay? The prize is often not what we think. When we're married, in a marriage, oftentimes what we think the prize is is a happy and healthy marriage. The prize is covenant love and commitment in spite of our disappointments. See, what we think is the, the prize, the, the high goal, the prize is happy and healthy marriage, but the prize that is in the process is covenant love and commitment in spite of our disappointments. Now, let me say this. Of course, a happy and healthy marriage is desirable. It is something that God clearly states in his word is desirable for us, but part of the beauty of that is the process to get there. And, and, and can we just acknowledge that a happy and healthy marriage, is, it, that's, it's not a destination you get to and then you're done and you made it, right? If you're going to have a happy and healthy marriage, there is a constant pursuit of that because two people are growing and changing, right? I've heard people say, uh, you know, I've been married five times, all to the same person, right? Like, because people change, people grow, hopefully, right? That's, that's part of what that looks like. Part of the beauty of the process is learning to love an imperfect sinner and be loved as an imperfect sinner in the context of covenant commitment. That, friends, to learn to love someone that's an imperfect sinner, to be loved as an imperfect sinner in the context of covenant commitment, that is a treasure that we would never behold if God waved a magic wand over every married couple at their wedding, making them both the perfect spouse for one another. 
we think the prize is whatever idealized version we have of a happy and healthy marriage. Part of what God wants us to see is the process there, though it's difficult, though it's uh, wrought with challenges, it, it's, there, is, there is beauty in that. There is beauty in the fact that because we've started, we've planted the seed of this marriage into the soil of covenant commitment, that we, because that's the case, then we are staying here. We are loving an imperfect sinner, and we are going to let some, that imperfect sinner love us as an imperfect sinner, and we're going to see a picture of what Christ does with us as we do that. The prize is not just the destination. The prize is in the process. This happens in ministry as well. It's true of ministry. Most of us think the prize is a perfect church. But it is often in working through the imperfection and messiness and growing together that we see and appreciate the beauty of Christ transforming his people. Do you see that? Are you tracking with me on this? It is often in the imperfection and messiness and growing together that we see and appreciate the beauty of Christ transforming his people. Without that, how could we see that active work of God in the lives of others? This is one way that God allows us to see with our very own eyes that he is faithfully working in and through his people. And remember, I've said it a lot of times, the prize oftentimes is actually in the process. This is very hard to remember. It's hard to remember when you're in the process. It's hard to remember when things are tough, when it's, when it's been months, when it's been sometimes years. It's difficult. But God is faithful. He hasn't forgotten you. He doesn't need to remember, oh, that's not, what it's, that's not what's going on. He's involved in every detail of this. He's with you. Now, some of you, this last point, you may not think it applies to you. I'm talking about ministry. I'm talking about church, the way we think about it. You might be like, eh, you know, I, I get the singleness thing. I get the marriage thing. Um, and then I think it applies to you. But, but the Bible says that it does. Let me just drop this on you. Ephesians 4.12 says that it is, it is the job of every church leader to do this. It says, God has, has given the leaders of the church for the equipping of the saints, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. And so I, I don't know if you think of yourself as in ministry, but if you belong to Jesus, Jesus thinks of you as in ministry. The question is not, are you in ministry? The question is, what kind of job are you doing? <laughs> are you showing up? <laughs> are you uh, actually walking in the calling and the gifting that God has put upon you uh, and that he's expecting to have, be able to pull back out of you, uh, you know, since he saved you by his blood and his taking you out of a path towards eternal death and destruction, right? All that. Amen. So uh, you, are, you are in the ministry. According to Jesus, uh, the question is, are we acting like that? Do we think like that? And so that being true, the fact that every, you know, I think sometimes what happens is we think that people with a certain title and up in the church, however that works, right, that it's their job to do the ministry. And, uh, you know, we, we might show up, we do the things that, you know, maybe we like to do or feel like doing or sometimes not, whatever. But, you know, it's, kind of, it's like their job to do, do the ministry stuff. And, and what the Bible says is that church leaders are supposed to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So for evangelism and missions and for all of what it takes to push forward this beautiful gospel into the world, 
the job of church leaders is not to do all that stuff, but sometimes it's tempting because if it feels like other people don't want to do it or you feel like you're bothering folks or sometimes it is, it's control issues. Sometimes ministry leaders forget these verses and they're like, well, you know, I'm going to do it because if anybody else does it, it won't be done as good as I can. Uh, and then they crash and burn and wonder why. So there's a lot of ways that this goes wonky and sideways, but uh, we see God's expressed desire about it is that Every single person that has come to faith in Christ sees themselves as ministers, sees themselves as a part of what God is doing in the earth and a part of the body of Christ fulfilling her mission. Amen? So that being true, hopefully your eyes are open. And hopefully you do notice where your church needs to grow. And hopefully you know God wants to equip you to help accomplish every single thing we are called to accomplish. And hopefully you will not let disdain or discouragement creep in and stop you from fulfilling your place in the body of Christ. And hopefully you will see there is precious blessing for us as God's people in the process of growing and maturing together. Amen. If you don't, if you aren't able to come to that perspective, then you will likely be discouraged much of your life you will drift from church to church looking for the perfect place, not remembering that perfection will elude us all until that great and glorious day when we all stand together in the throne room of the king and worship him together. And if, if somebody finds a perfect church, they should run because they'll ruin it. That's a fun little humble ditty, isn't it? <laughs> I don't even think about it that way. I know. That's my job. Make you think about it in new, fun, creative ways. So that's the truth. So let me, let me in, in terms of all that, I just want to say something, a couple things quickly. Um, like, like practical application of what I'm talking about. That, that, the, the, that what God has called church leaders to do is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So a couple like practical things. One, one thing I want you to know. That is why here, that's why tonight in particular, we'll use tonight as an example, um, the, the sermon is not a talk that's 25 minutes long and includes a 15-minute story meant to make you laugh and giggle, right? Because that's not going to equip you for the work of the ministry. That's not going to, it's God's word <laughs> that is going to empower you to go from here to within, to within the context of gathering here to be able to serve and do all of it, that it takes for us to gather as God's people, to celebrate him. But part of what we're doing here is getting ready to go out from here. Gathered, God's people have a purpose, but scattered, we still have a purpose. It doesn't change or lessen, right? And so that's why it's important when we are, when we have the opportunity to come together, we are actually digging in God's word and depending upon the power of his word to change, transform, and equip us to go and do this mission he gave us, right? Because if we don't think we need that, we've gotten really foolish because when Jesus said, the last thing he said to his men, right, according to the book of Matthew is, Go therefore into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And what does he say? He says, I, I always imagine that the disciples' mouths dropped when they heard him say, go into all the world and preach the gospel. They probably thought, you know, like, I'm sure we can handle Jerusalem, eh, Samaritans, maybe, we'll give that a shot, you know, maybe what Rome's got going on, all the world, that's an impossible task, you understand. So what did Jesus say? He said, lo, I'm with you. 
always, even to the end of the age. We need Jesus to do any one ounce of what it is he's called us to do as his body. And we need the power of his word. We need constantly reminded of vision. Do you understand this about yourself? Let me tell you something about yourself that you may not know. And it's, it's true of me too. We are all truth amnesiacs. Why, why, do, why is the gospel preached so plainly? That, isn't that milk? Why do we do it every week? Because, friend, every single week you are assaulted a thousand different ways with a counter-narrative to the gospel. Because nothing else works this way. Nothing else works where I commit the sin, I commit the crime, and then simply because of love and mercy, I'm, I'm pardoned and someone else takes the penalty. That's not how the world works. The world works, you do the crime, you do the time. The world works, you want, you want something, you get out, you work for it. Now, is there work to do as God's people? Absolutely, but we're not working for our rescue. We're not working for salvation. We're working in light of our salvation. We're working because we want others to see the glorious beauty of what it means to be saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. We're working because the love of God compels us to care deeply about the eternity of every single person within our sphere of influence and even the stranger we pass by. Is that right or wrong? There is work to do, but we're not, we're not working anything off. We're not working to gain something from God. He loves us. He's saved us. And we're working in light of those beautiful truths. So what does that mean? That's part of why I, I understand. Guys, I... <laughs> Some of you might have like a book or podcast you'd like to give me. <laughs> I'm sure you do. I, I, I've probably read it, and I listen to a lot of them. I've listened to most, I listen to a lot of church leadership podcasts, and, and I don't, I'm not going to tell you any specific names or whatever. That's not my point. My point is, do you understand that there is a large movement within the American church that they would encourage, especially young pastors or anybody that'll listen to them, to consider you and anybody that might come in these doors as customers. That's the language they use, and that's the way they want church leaders to think about the people as customers. How do we serve them like a business serves customers? Do any of you see a red flag there? Is there any potential issue? Is there any potential conflict with that language and that mentality with something like, um, if you're going to follow me, you're going to have to pick up your cross, if you're going to follow Jesus, it's going to mean laying your life down in sacrificial love for others. That's not what customers do. Customers come and expect to be served. And I understand. There's, if I could shorten the sermon and make it more funny, and that, that, in that doing that, it, it would probably make more customers happy. But actually, my job when you come here is not to make you laugh and make you feel warm and fuzzy and have you leave here going, oh, I had a great time. Actually, every single week, my job is to try to take a sledgehammer and break off all the nastiness and lies of Satan that have gotten on you over the week and try to free you again to go and do the work of the ministry. It's to challenge every lie that you've believed. It's to come against all of the forces of darkness, they're trying to convince you to do the exact opposite of what God has called you to do. And the, power, the, the word of God has the power to do that, okay? This is also why you may be wondering, why, you know, why don't we get a better marketing strategy? Why, you know, there's a whole lot of things we could do, right, that could get, get more people to show up. Yeah, yeah, there absolutely is. But is that what we want to do? Do we want to market better? Do we want to have better customer service and thus get more people to show up and consume religious goods from us instead of from somewhere else? Is that what God has called us to do? 
as his church. No, actually what he's called us to do is to, as the people of God, to be equipped to do the work of the ministry. So if, if you're wondering, hey, why haven't we exploded in growth? I want you to run to the nearest mirror and stop and take a look at it. Okay? Because here's, here's, here's the growth plan. We're, we're going back to the one Jesus had. I know there's a lot of new ones, and they seem to work. I get that. Totally, I understand that. We're, we're going with the one that, that Jesus gave us a long time ago. It was called Make Disciples. <laughs> it was called Go into All the World and Live Such a Vibrant, Love-Filled Faith that People Are Curious, and then we open our mouths, and we share with them the beauty of the gospel, and then we invite them to come be a part of the life of the church. What we're going to do here is we're going to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. We're going to believe that God's way is actually the only way to get it done in a way that's pleasing to him. You're going to leave me hanging there or say amen, do something, grunt, anything would be great. Good. Okay. Awesome. We need to learn the prizes often in the process. We need to humbly acknowledge that the prize is often not what we think it is. But we should also be aware that through disbelief or disobedience, we sometimes prolong the process. So how do we sometimes prolong the process? Sometimes we prolong the process by doing things in our own strength. In our way, our thoughts. We have this idea of what the end result should be. And so if we feel like God is too slow, we will, we will put shove him out of the way, and in our own strength, we will push and make the thing happen that we think should happen. Well, what's wrong with that? Let me read you this, 2 Corinthians 12, 9 through 11. This is Apostle Paul. Paul had um, prayed three times asking Jesus to remove this thorn in the flesh. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Is there a conflict with that and grabbing the reins and doing things in our own strength when we think God's going too slow? Do you see any issues there? I do. And I hope you do. It is in our acknowledgement of our weakness that Christ has made strong, where he can come in and do what needs to be done. We need to trust him in the process and not think that, uh, well, God's going too slow, so I'm going to make this happen. Because every time we do that, every single time, it leads to pain and it leads to destruction and it lengthens the process of what God's actually trying to do with us. Okay? Does that mean we, we have no part to play in it? No. But that means... We're trusting God and seeking his wisdom on what our part is. We're not, you know, boxing him out and getting in here and, and doing this thing our way. Uh, you know, most of us have done that. If we think about it, we know how that goes. So praise the Lord. How's the second way that we prolong the process through disobedience or discontentment? Uh, sometimes we just bail out of the process. You know, what would have happened if the boat bumped up against Mount Ararat and, and Noah's like, you know, I can't take it anymore, right? And he just throws himself out and he's like, I'm going to swim for it. How would that have gone? He might have found a mountaintop eventually. He might have been able to swim to one, but then he would have died there of starvation and exposure on top of the mountaintop. That's how it would have gone down. He didn't bail out of the process though. Noah 
trusted God, stuck in there. Is there anything in the Word of God that will help us to do that? Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make your paths straight. Most of you have a bookmark or something that says that, maybe a cross-stitch. Okay, most of you, to some degree, if you've had any Bible exposure, have heard that verse a lot. Some of you can recite it. Friends, we've got to live it. <laughs> Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him. What's the promise? He will direct your path. He hasn't abandoned you in the process. He hasn't forgot about you. Stay in there. Don't bail. Trust him. Amen. Those are a couple of the ways we could have spent a lot more time on that. Use your imagination, think of more, and repent for them. Uh, those are some of the ways we can miss the prize in the process. But let's also look at how do we stay faithful in the process. I'm going to give you a few things. How do we stay faithful in the process? The first is we cling to the last thing God told us. Cling to the last thing God told us. Now, notice that God didn't show up here in Genesis 8 after the rain stopped and tell Noah Settle in, son. You know, you've got about a year cruise here. He, he didn't give him the time frame. You've got a year before you get off this ark. However, here's what God did tell Noah. Way back in Genesis 6, which to us it's two chapters, but remember, Genesis 6 was 100 years earlier. This is before the ark was constructed. This was the last instruction Noah got about the whole deal. What did God say? Genesis 6, 17 and 19. Behold, I, even I, am bringing the flood of water upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life from under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall perish, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. And every living thing of all flesh you shall bring two of every kind into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. We're seven, eight, nine months into this cruise what is Noah, why hasn't Noah bailed out? Why hasn't Noah started to carve oars to try to figure out if he can get to land? Why is Noah still trusting this? Because a hundred years earlier, God told him, you build an ark, rain's coming. And when you build this ark, you bring in two of every kind of animal and they're going to stay alive with you. Woo! You talk about clinging to God's word for a while. You talk about clinging to the last thing God told you. See, that's the problem. A lot of times, we don't do that. A lot of times, we forget. Or a lot of times, we think too much time has passed by. Maybe God forgot. Or maybe God's just not going to be faithful to what he said. Come on now. This will help you more than you're acting like it will help you. This will help somebody right here. This will set you free. A hundred years later, the word of God was still ringing in that man's ears. And that's why he's patiently... You know, he starts putting birds out, man. If, if it was me, man, all the birds would... I, all the birds go. Somebody find land. Everybody, Go. Somebody bring me good news, man. We've been in this thing 10 months, right? No, he sends a raven first. That doesn't, that doesn't conclude anything, probably because the raven's landing on carcasses. It'll eat carcasses. It's, it's not probably the right bird to get the news we need. So he starts with the dove. But it's not, he's not every day frantically throwing the dove out there. Come on, let's do something here. He waits 40 days after the raven, seven days after the dove the first time, seven more days. You see this patience. You see this peace as he's walking through this process that God's taken him through. And part of how he was able to do that is he clung to the word that God gave him. Now, for you, that might be something that God has spoken to you directly. I'm charismatic enough to believe he'll do that. But it may be something that he said in his word. Either way, cling to God's word. 
It's part of how we stay faithful in this thing. It's part of how we walk through the process. So, first is cling to the last thing God told you. Cling to God's faithfulness thus far. Remember, part of how Noah had the reaction he had, all that had happened thus far, uh, that God, God had said how that was going to happen, right? He said, you're going to build, you build an ark. Here's, here's how that's going to work. He, you know, Noah had never seen an ark. He, he builds the ark and look, that thing does look like it'll float. And then when the rains came, it actually did float. Noah said, I'm going to send animals to you and I'm going to shut you up in the ark. That happened exactly like God said it would. There was thing after thing after thing that God said, this is how it's going to go down, and it went down. And that is part of how, even though it had been a hundred years, God was faithful to Noah. When God said something to Noah, it came to pass. And Noah was able to stand on that. I mean, can you imagine? I, I can just imagine what the rest of the family's commentary was during the 11th month boat trip. We bump into the mountains of Ararat. We're four months deep. I mean, i got to imagine around month five, somebody's in Noah's ear about, what are we doing here? What are we doing here? The food seems like it's getting low. It's been a long time. It only took 40 days for this thing to fill up. What's taking so long? And Noah had to just keep saying, here's what God told me. We're going to close up in this ark with a bunch of animals. He's going to keep us alive, and he's going to make a covenant with me, and that's what God's going to do. God has been faithful, and he's going to be faithful. So go feed the animals. Shut it. I assume Noah was the boss, like the captain, the skipper, whatever, on the ark. I just, he probably had the longest beard. That's how it went down. <laughs> Here's what, so that was, that was Noah's experience. Dear friend, can I, can I just please say to you, God was faithful to Noah. That's part of how he stayed in the process. God has been faithful to us. God has been faithful to us. God has been faithful to you. Well, you don't know me. Oh, it doesn't matter. I know him. I know he's been faithful to you, and I know sometimes we get ungrateful, sometimes we get overcome by the difficulty of the day or the month of the year. I know that sometimes it is hard to see the glimmer of light to remember back to God's faithfulness, but we need, friends, to do that. We need to understand that we overcome the enemy by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. We need to remember every place God was faithful. Some of us have terrible memories, and we need to start writing stuff down when God is faithful, when prayers are answered. And if everything is so dark, and all the world seems so dismal, and your personal situation is so broken that you can't come up with one single example of God's faithfulness in your life, in your experience, then friends, we can always reach back to this faithful moment on Calvary where Jesus hung and bled and died for our salvation. He has been faithful to us. If he's been faithful to you, say amen. Let me hear you. Amen. Amen. Noah stayed in that ark, the instrument of his salvation. When the seas were rough and that ark, it pitched and lurched, he clung to it, trusting that it would keep him safe because God told him it would. Dear friends, God has given us a better ark. We don't have to cling to some wooden structure. We cling to Christ because he is our ark and in him we are safe. We cling to Christ. And we are able to trust that what he has begun, he will finish. What he has begun in us, he will finish. Philippians 1.6 says, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. I know, I know there's inner turmoil. I know that there's outside influences. There's so many ways that you are tempted to be convinced that God's bailed on you or that the best thing for you to do is to bail on God. Friends, 
God is going to finish the good thing he started in you. Trust him. He's been faithful just far, thus far. Everything he said was going to happen has happened. Jesus does always finish what he starts, right? Genesis has showed us that. He always does. Remember? You, you, go, you go back to Genesis 3, and you, and you, see, uh, you see our first parents f- falling into sin, tempted by the devil. You see God start to lay out the punishment for that. And in the midst of that, in the midst of him letting, know, letting everybody involved know the consequences of their sin, he says to that serpent, you're going to bruise his heel, but he's going to crush your head. You see, all the way back in Genesis 3, and, and we got to think about this. Does God have the ability to stay faithful to what he said he would do? Does God have the ability to come through on his promises? Friends, best estimate, it could be more than this, but conservatively, we're looking at 4,000 years from the time Adam and Eve heard those words, heard those words spoke to the serpent, 4,000 years from then to Christ's coming. 4,000 years of God managing all of the variables of human will and stupidity to come down to this finite point that he already spoke was going to happen. 4,000 years. Ah, that doesn't sound like that big of a deal. 4,000 years is double the time from right now back to when Jesus walked the earth. It's a long time. And God has been working and weaving his will from that time in Genesis 3 all the way up until now. (laughs) Time doesn't slow him down. Time doesn't hurt his ability to be faithful. God shepherded this process all the way through the Old Testament. From Genesis 3, the situation with Noah, the situation with Abraham, the situation with Joseph, from Moses to David to the kings to the exile, God's working a plan the whole time. He's being faithful the whole time. Nothing's going to stop him from bringing that beautiful truth to pass that even though Satan would bruise the heel of our Savior, our Savior would crush his head, that Jesus would come, that he would be born of a virgin, that he would live the perfect life none of us could, and he would die the death that all of us deserved in our place for our sins. Oh, and best of all, that three days later, just like he said he would, he would rise from the grave, showing that sin and death were conquered, vanquished, and defeated. Praise God. God's timing, guys, God's timing can be trusted because his promises are always true. Right now, there's something in in, in the way God's doing, moving, that seems slow to you, but his timing can be trusted because his promises are always true. You got 4,000 years from Adam to Jesus. Man, think about. Think about Abraham. Abraham, from the time God told him he would have a son, 25 years until Isaac showed up. 25 years he waited for that promise. Moses, 40 years in the wilderness tending sheep before God called him up for his purpose, showed him what he had for him. David knew, was anointed as king 20 years before the throne was his. Guys, we're talking big, long time frames, big, long processes, but think about those processes. Think about what was happening in those time frames. Think about what God was doing in those people so that when the end result came, here it is, when the end result came, they wouldn't destroy it, they wouldn't spoil it, they wouldn't blow it. That's what we need to understand, we need to know about ourselves. If God gave us some of the things we wish we had right this very moment, we'd ruin it. We're not ready. And there's beauty And there's a prize in the process. There's things that we don't know we need. (laughs) There's things that we need cultivated in us that can only come through faithfully walking out the process. Praise God. Praise God for his gospel. Thank God he's faithful to his promises.
Hallelujah. I'm so glad Noah didn't bail off the boat. May we not. May we be a people who trust God's timing. May we be a people who see the true prize is often in the process. And when the process seems too slow, may we cling to Christ and his word, knowing he remembers us and will never fail us. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now in the name of Jesus. Lord, we thank you for Genesis 8. We thank you, Lord, for the story of Noah. We thank you that you let us see a window into the process you took him through. Thank you that you were faithful to him and you've been faithful to us. Thank you that you've never said one thing that didn't come to pass. Thank you that every promise you've ever made, you've stood on and you've followed through with. Lord, thank you that that is true in every story we see in the scriptures. Thank you that it's true in our lives. Father, we ask you to forgive us for the times when we don't remember your faithfulness, the times when we are tempted to believe that maybe you've forgotten us. Lord, there's too many examples. There's too many times you've shown yourself both mighty and able to do all that you've said you will do. So God, please forgive us and please equip us. Please give us the grace and the strength to understand that if what you're doing seems slow to us, that you're not slow, you're doing something. You're working. You're bringing things to pass that maybe we don't even see how that affects this or the other thing. We can't see it, Lord. Help us to be quicker to acknowledge humbly how limited our vision is compared to yours. Your thoughts are higher. Your ways are far better. And God, we just, we're thankful that you are God and we are not. Help us, Lord. Help us to live as if this is true, especially when we are tempted to believe you're being slow. You never have been. You are always exactly on time. Thank you. Thank you that we can trust you. Thank you we'll never be disappointed if we do. May you be glorified and worshiped by the trust of your people. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.